Hello and welcome to this episode of our Sabbath School from Home podcast. We're so glad that you can be here with us. My name is Cameron. I live down in Launceston, Tasmania. And today we had a a once in a 60-year experience. I woke up this morning and had snow on my lawn. Well, I woke up this morning. This is Ken. Um, I live in Launceston as well, although on the other side of the river. And uh, I woke up this morning, I reckon, earlier than you, Cam, because I was throwing snowballs, uh, having a snowball fight with my daughter at 12.30am. Hello, this is Luke from Hong Kong, and uh, something has gone very badly wrong with the weather if I wake up to snow here. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Lachlan from Sydney, and I can report no snow here, quite pleasant weather. Wonderful. Well, uh, as we have done in the last few weeks, we're going to try and track a little closer to the lesson than, than we uh, did in our first episodes. And this week's lesson is on spiritual gifts and the impact spiritual gifts can have on witnessing. And uh, Locke and I were talking earlier in the week, uh, uh, observing that, that the term spiritual gifts is very much a New Testament term. One presumes that God's spirit was still active in the Old Testament. And uh, we wondered what passage we could find in the Old Testament for something new that would enlighten a discussion on spiritual gifts and perhaps even pick one of the gifts that we're a bit less comfortable with, maybe maybe the gift of tongues, which made me think of the passage that we're about to read, which is found in Numbers chapter 22. And I am going to start reading from verse 21. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat her to get her back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between two vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord... She pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it, so he beat her again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she laid down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat her with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have abused me. I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. Why did you beat your donkey those three times? The angel of the Lord demanded. Look, I have come to block your way, because you are stubbornly resisting me. Three times the donkey saw me and shied away. Otherwise, I would certainly have killed you by now and spared the donkey. Then Balaam confessed to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I didn't realize you were standing in the road to block my way. I will return home if you are against my going. (laughs) When you told me we were going to do the story of Balaam, with regards to speaking in tongues, I assumed that you were referring to um, Balaam speaking only the words that the Lord told him. I 
it did not occur to me that we were talking about the donkey. That's that's much more fun. I was thinking of the donkey, but you're right. I hadn't picked up that idea in verse 35. And of course, this is this is uh, Balaam does only speak the words that the angel um, gives him and really offends the king, uh, which is where the story ends. But yes, what before we even get to the, perhaps the gift of tongues. Uh, what are the main dominant features of this story that jump out at you? Well, the the sense of humour, um, you know, the, <laughs> the 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 outrageous anger of Balaam at his donkey, um, the the double asking of the question, "Why did you beat your donkey?" Um, I I think that this story is difficult to read with a straight face. It is it, the NIV it perhaps exaggerates things a little bit more than some of the translations we were using um in verse 29 the niv says uh that balaam answered the donkey you have made a fool of me and i would imagine that anyone talking to a donkey um doesn't need a lot of help um, in looking looking a fool Mm. you you know what i i certainly see the humor and i i don't want to detract from that Uh, there was something a little disturbing about the story uh, or correspondence to some of the things that I experience every day. Um, I deal every day with uh, family violence. Um, And one of the uh, terrible and classic uh, characteristics of family violence is blaming the victim. Um, And in fact, there's a, a fascinating uh, book title, which I've seen. I haven't yet read the book, but it is called See What You Made Me Do, um, uh, where the abuser uh, blames uh, the victim for making them abuse the victim. Uh, and uh, I, I, I couldn't help but see uh, Balaam uh, taking that approach with his donkey. Uh, and I, I therefore came across a somewhat uh, disturbing illusion uh, in what can otherwise be seen as quite a humorous story. It's certainly the case that Balaam is not, not painted in a positive light. And I don't believe him for a moment when he says, if I had known, uh, because uh, uh, he was faced with a situation where the reality of the angel of the Lord blocking his way existed. And that reality uh, brought out what was really and truly inside him. Yeah. Uh, and um, The shifting of blame. Uh, yes, uh, I, yes. The other day, I, I, part of my duties at the school where I teach is um, the very arduous task of running an aviation course where I help students fly flight simulators Ooh, and learn aviation the theory. Suffering. Yeah, the, the tough su- job. Su- but anyway, I had a flight simulator set up for a while in the library, and it was a failure because um, I could take my classes up to use it, but when my back was turned or when I wasn't there, all sorts of other students would jump on it to waste time. And there was one student who uh, was referred to once in my hearing as an oxygen thief. He, he stole oxygen from the room that could have been put to good use by the students. Not a bad kid, actually. Nice guy and very fun-loving, but not very diligent. And he, I walked into the library, and here he was on the flight simulator. And I said, hey, you're on the flight simulator. And he jumped up. He said, sorry. 
And the first thing he said after that was, I didn't know you were in the library. <laughs> so the the thing that the thing that he'd done wrong was gotten caught. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's so much of what our world is based on now. It's based on the appearance of what mm-hmm. is right. And and the worst thing that you can do um uh in our culture now, which has become much more a shame culture than a guilt culture. Um, uh, the distinctions referred to by Jonathan Sachs in his book Morality um, uh, is to appear um, to have done the wrong thing. Or admit um, to doing the wrong thing. Yeah, and, and because we live in a shame culture where there cannot be forgiveness, um, uh, the worst thing that you can do is to admit you were wrong. Yeah. That that whole and yet that's the first step in forgiveness. This this story is so full of that. It, uh, we picked it up in verse twenty one of Numbers twenty two, but the preceding dozen or so verses are the story where the messengers come and ask Balaam to to come and curse the Israelites, and they have to come three or four times because Balaam says, "Well, you know, look, God has told me not to go with them. The, the Lord will not let me go with you." In verse thirteen. Um, and in verse 18, even if Balak were to give me his palace filled with silver and gold, I would be powerless to do anything against the will of the Lord my God. So then finally, Balaam does decide to go. Um, in verse 20, interestingly, it sort of indicates that God says, okay, you can go, uh, but you can only do what I tell you to do, which of course is what ends up happening in this story. The whole, the whole story is full of um, God being in charge and God doing the talking. Um, that's that's a big so, theme here. Quick question I note now that we look at verse 20. A bit mean of God to put an angel in the way that will kill him and also tell him to go. Well, we don't know that the angel actually would have killed him. The angel only well, says he true. would have. Um, you know, it, it's quite possible that the angel, knew, angel presumably, is allowed to reveal himself to whomever he chooses, and he chooses the donkey. Um, you so, just hope that God explained to the angel yeah. this whole this whole trick really, <laughs> really clearly, because <laughs> if the angel got the wrong idea, yeah, it could have gone badly. Well, I I do like what the angel says when the angel says that. Uh, I think that when the angel says he was going to kill Balaam, I I think that that's only half of what the angel says. The angel says, I would have killed you by now, but I would have let the donkey live. So maybe what the angel is actually saying is not he's not trying to threaten harm on Balaam. He's trying to draw a comparison between Balaam and the donkey. And I think it's just beautiful that the donkey would have would have made it and Balaam, Balaam wouldn't have. And, the, and that... Uh, um connection is also drawn in verse 29 where Balaam says to the donkey if I had a sword in my hand I would kill you right now and then we come across the angel who does in fact have a sword in his hand and says well if the donkey hadn't saved you I would have killed you you. and let the donkey live Um, yes it it could be that the angel is just responding in that way because because he's trying to shed light on the reaction and the the sort of instinct of Balaam's anger yeah um, I mean, there's so many elements to this, but it's so wonderful that the donkey speaks to Balaam and Balaam answers the donkey and you'd, you expect he's going to say, what? You're talking. 
have you been able to talk all these years? Uh, and he doesn't, he says. <laughs> he does You've made a fool of this, <laughs> this miracle very rapidly. He just <laughs> straight into the argument. No yeah, yeah. Uh, hesitation at all. It, it does show a little bit how when the red mist descends, uh, perhaps we don't see things as yeah. clearly as we ought. There's and another that's... beautiful example of that, and that's Jonah. Um, because in that story, specific mention is made of animals quite often. The whale obeys God much better than, much quicker than Jonah does. In fact, everyone in the whole story obeys God more readily and more immediately and more willingly than Jonah does. Of course, when when they wear sackcloth and ashes, it specifically mentions that their animals wore sackcloth. Mm. And then in the closing chapter of the story, God says to Jonah, "Hey, you're really annoyed. You're really angry. Well, in that city." are many people, not to mention their animals. Mm. And there is an inference there as well to Jonah that you are totally unrealistically upset. The animals in there have done a better job of being repentant than you have. You know, there's a lot in that. And Luke, we'll come back to your comment in a moment. Um, But uh, on a light-hearted note, um, I think that really does show the importance of animals uh, in God's kingdom. And I have been recently, uh, trying to persuade my wife uh, that uh, we need a miniature schnauzer. Um, And she is uh, very firmly uh, against that proposition. You've just given me uh, a very spiritual um, uh, weapon in my armament to uh, deploy uh, against that position. Here's another (laughs) one you can use, Ken. Mark Lowry from the Gaithers once observed... Um, that all dogs must go to heaven because they're Christians. He said cats go to hell. I can't help that. But dogs dogs go to heaven because um, you can tell they're Christians because the way you do this is you take your dog and your wife and lock them in the boot of the car and leave them there for two hours <laughs> and then open the boot and see who's happy to see you. <laughs> it won't be your wife. It'll be the dog. <laughs> That's forgiveness. I intend never to put that that that, that into uh, practice to see which, what, how it works. <laughs> Luke, you had a really important point to make, and I think I, you should make I? it now. <laughs> I, um, I was just going to make a comment about ways to keep dogs and get rid of wives. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't my my intention. <laughs> there is a theme throughout all of the old testament i'm starting to notice from doing these podcasts about about the the ongoing nature of creation the creation process being an ongoing thing um and how how nature is in in many ways sort of constantly under god's control um and you see it in the way that the old testament writers write about how animals follow readily follow the will of god more so than people um and i just when you were talking about it just reminded me of when we were talking about that psalm Mm. um, where the psalmist writes about how he sees creation sort of every day Mm. Mm. i just i I can see a sort of thematic connection there that's very very interesting and indeed paul speaks about the you know the whole of creation groaning waiting for redemption um and 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 it's interesting isn't it that here the 
uh, lower being, if you like, <laughs> in one sense, um, uh, more readily recognises uh, the reality of uh, the angel and of God's control of the world uh, than Balaam, who professed to only be able to do what God would tell him to do. Yeah, and it's exaggerated, Ken, because in this entire story, up until the point that the angel speaks, at, at which point the angel is probably the clearest in argument and logic, but the donkey is by far the most logical and reasonable argument in the story so far. But am I the same donkey you've ridden all your life? Have I ever done anything like this before? That's an extremely good answer, especially from a donkey. And yeah. <laughs> I, one idea that's occurring to me as we think through this uh, in relation to spiritual gifts and, and specifically perhaps even the gift of tongues, um, this donkey hadn't spoken before. Uh, Balaam admits that. Uh, presumably didn't speak much again. This speaking in human language for Balaam's ears is a one-off special gift for a particular purpose in a particular place. And, okay, that might be stretching the idea of spiritual gifts a little bit, but then I realized that in Acts, the early church has a couple of events where um, the apostles find that all of the people have been understanding them, you know, so loosely what we would talk about as a gift of tongues. And, again, that didn't seem to be something that happened to them for every single situation that they found themselves in. It was a particular gift of the Spirit for a particular time. And I'm thinking about that in contrast to the way we so often in our culture think of spiritual gifts as being sort of like personality traits or talents even. The lesson does kind of steer that way slightly. Uh, you know, talent, someone's really good at music, so that must be their spiritual gift. So we'll get them to do musical items in church. And we, um, we even su suggest to people that they, people should work on their spiritual gifts um, to sort of bring them to fruition. And we go on, um, we go on like a retreats or something where we are trying to nurture spiritual gifts. It wasn't something that it seems in the in the New Testament church or or in the story of Balaam that they were trying hard to. It just happened. I don't think it is too much of a, a stretch. Although obviously it was a little bit tongue in cheek to suggest this passage as, a, as speaking in tongues. I wonder, is there such a thing as the spiritual gift of speaking in tongue-in-cheek? Um, <laughs> you definitely have that. Yeah, one. I, was gonna, I know somebody who's got that in spades. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, um, so, but yeah, I don't think it is too much of a, of a stretch because they are, they are really common themes. I mean, uh, a spiritual gift is a gift given. It's not, I mean, a gift is not something that you've earned necessarily. Um, whether it's given or not is at the will of the giver. Mm. And Cam, in all seriousness, I think that this story you've chosen very well because it illustrates that so clearly in that a donkey cannot practice <laughs> and get better at talking like a person. Mm. Um it is very clear who has the power to allow things to play out the way that they did and allow the donkey to, to do and say what it did. And one of the evidences the that this is God's interaction is that the voice is coming from an unlikely source. 
um, from someone we wouldn't really think. And I, I was trying to think about, I was thinking um, while I was preparing for the podcast about the story of David, where Samuel's trying to, you know, go through the sons of Jesse looking for the next king. And God has to say, well, actually, you're looking at the outside, but I see things quite differently. Um, what other Bible passages are there where spiritual gifts are bestowed on people that we wouldn't suspect at first glance would be the natural recipients of those gifts? It, it does raise a very interesting question, doesn't it? Um, because uh, I, I'm not answering your question directly. I'm, I'm choosing a slightly different one, Cam. We, we, ex- we expect uh, the word of God to come from a religious source. Uh, we expect the word of God to be available to us uh, from church, uh, from the pulpit. Uh, and look, let us pray that that is always the case. Um, but perhaps uh, the word of God doesn't always come from where we might expect it. Um, uh, maybe we need to be looking harder in other places for God, um, uh, not just uh, in those places places where it seems it should be obvious. I think another good story from the Old Testament, Cam, is Gideon, uh, because he certainly mm. wasn't recognised by his fellow Israelites as being a military leader. Um, you know, they say, isn't he just the son of so-and-so? They're pretty dismissive. And God, God <laughs> guides him through a military leadership experience in such a way as to highlight the fact that it wasn't Gideon's intrinsic abilities and skills. It was very miraculous and very spirit-led by, you know, the the way that all of the many soldiers are, are dropped away until it's down to a preposterously tiny army. So that's a pretty clear example of this kind of, of gifting, um, specific gifting for a particular purpose in a particular place. I, I don't think... I don't think that I would go as far as to say this is the only way spiritual gifts work. I, I certainly would acknowledge that a lot of what we regularly identify as spiritual gifts um, are spiritual gifts and can be. But I think that the point we're making is how important it is to realize that spiritual gifts as an idea and as a concept and as an experience in our world probably go a fair bit beyond the 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 spheres we typically think of. What, mm. what's, what do we think of, of Adventists when we talk about spiritual gifts? Uh, one is the gift of prophecy, um, at least to the extent that it was manifest 150-odd years ago. And and we, we, we interpret the gift of prophecy very much to be a, a gift in, in explaining uh, events that haven't happened yet, uh, which we've yes, commented in past is... episodes that the prophets did more than that. Yes. Well, quite. And, and, and the gift of prophecy in Alan White that we recognise um, was certainly much more than that. Yes, yes, of course. So there is one passage in the New Testament that often is used when in, in Adventist discussions of spiritual gifts, and that's Ephesians 4, verse 11. Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. And in in different translations, it, it speaks of, you know, to some is given the gift of teaching and to some the gift of evangelism. So that's one answer to the question, how do we tend to think about spiritual gifts? And the other passage is uh, Romans 12. Um, at verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. 
If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If teaching, let him teach. Encouraging, let him encourage. I think sometimes that's called exhortation. Uh, contributing to the needs of others, give generously. Leadership, govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. There is in Ephesians 4 also, if you go down to 29, just scrolling through uh, what you were referencing, Lachlan, uh, and thinking about the, the specific topic of, of talking, um, it says from verse 29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Um, and then 31, it says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And right in the middle of that, at verse 30, it says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So mm. it would seem that those things are the things that grieve the Holy Spirit of God, the unwholesome talk coming out of your mouths, and getting rid of those other things is the way not to grieve or those bad things, and putting on the compassion and forgiveness is a way of avoiding that grievance. And, and the, the comment that uh, you should say what benefits others is pulled up, I think, is it in Corinthians? I'm clutching at straws here where, where he talks about spiritual gifts and says well you know with the gift of tongues if you're speaking in tongues but no one knows what's being said um, then do it at home but in church in a communal setting we should focus on what benefits the community um, I agree with Paul um, in fact I'd find it very uncomfortable if people started speaking in tongues uh, in church and I suspect that many of Adventists would too and I I my feeling is that we read those verses of Paul with a considerable sense of relief. It kind of lets us off the hook a bit, doesn't it? When you say speaking in tongues, Cam, what exactly are you referring to? Um, well, the, it doesn't seem to be exactly uniform in the New Testament, does it? There, there's the passage in Acts 2, is it, where Peter's preaching and everyone hears what he's saying in their own language, which is... Um, which is a gift of tongues of some sort. There's obviously this sort of a spontaneous outburst of, of joy or, or, or expression um, that some people have, um, which is more evident, obviously, in other denominations. Um, I'm going to turn back to another favourite author, Adrian Plass, which I seem to refer to every week. But he, um, as always, manages to sort of uh, tease apart this issue in a way that's fun and light-hearted. Um, I think you like Adrian Plass because he often has his tongue in his cheek as well. I think so. Well, in this case, he does. He, he wrote a manual. And it, it, the point of this manual was to say that it is so easy to mimic Christian behavior that we all ought to be very skeptical of ourselves. We ought to look... The, the quest to be genuinely authentic is, is one that ought to occupy a fair amount of time. Of course, how could you not be genuinely authentic? I don't suppose there is a authenticity that's not genuine but anyway um he, he he this is a manual that he writes it's, it's a sort of a, a how-to guide of how to appear like a successful christian um if you have no conviction uh and if you're completely self-interested um how can you succeed in a church and it turns out there's many ways to succeed in a church and his advice if you're in a church that's speaking in tongues is to memorize the names of the sri lankan cricket team from the 90s <laughs> And and with the suitable facial expressions, uh, this is, is very impressive, um, he said. 
um, in his own life, in, his, in one of his other works where he describes growing up and being converted um, as a teenager to Christianity or converting as a teenager, he describes an experience where he and a friend were with a, a Christian mentor very early on in his Christian walk. And this lady started speaking in tongues in the what we would associate as like babbling. And um, he and his friend were a bit put out. And after, after the experience happened, this lady interpreted for them and interpreted things about he and his friend about what god had in store for their futures things which happened and which were really formative in really surprising ways so i don't know i mean i you read the story of balaam and the donkey it's not quite clear what god's spirit's going to do next is it with my tongue in my cheek cam i can't help thinking that sometimes um when when more charismatic christians are speaking in tongues maybe that's just the spirit of god letting them translate into donkey language (laughs) (laughs) maybe there are donkeys present that are benefiting yeah well it it was after all the angel of the lord that uh, uh spoke through the donkey wasn't it or was it the lord opened the donkey's mouth in any event i thought there are tongues of men and of angels so maybe it was the angel's tongue that came through the donkey one of the things that strikes me about all of the examples that we've looked at, including Cam, the example you just mentioned, um, that's not in the Bible, is is that it, it is connected to that Ephesians 4.29. In every instance of, of, of speaking in tongues, it is beneficial. You can know it by its fruit, so to speak. Um you do not have an instance that I'm aware of, of, of uh, speaking in tongues of any kind, which comes from God, which does not benefit those who hear it, um, or, or those who are in the particular story in which it, it, it occurs. Um, it even kind of, in this story, to come all the way back to Balaam and the donkey, it even kind of benefits uh, Balak because he he sort of has this revelation um and it's interesting to my reading of it anyway he actually comes off rather admirably in the story because yes he wants to go down and attack the israelites but when balaam refuses or 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 seemingly refuses to do what he wants and instead blesses the israelites he doesn't as you might expect to powerful pagan king to do he doesn't just have him killed in his displeasure he accepts what occurs and in fact the story ends with him and balaam going off together and balaam advising him and telling him more information about what's going to happen and 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 how things will unfold um so i that would i suppose that's my observation is that if, if it's difficult to define a spiritual gift uh, by, by technical terms or by exactly how, it, how or where it manifests, uh, maybe it is better to try and define it by its, its effects. Um, because as, as you just said, Ken, God is... is uh, well, he's free to do whatever he wants in whichever way he wants. It's it's not uh, for us to say God only works in this way or that way. Uh, he 
and this is a wonderful thing in my opinion because um, uh, I've noticed that as you get older you become you, you, opportunities to be surprised come less frequently um, but uh, God uh, has an infinite variety of ways to surprise us that that element of surprise I'd like to pick up on I agree with everything you just said, and you said it very well. But there's one other aspect of spiritual gifts that comes out of some of these stories that I think we often skip over. Um, in our in our speed of justice, thinking of spiritual gifts as easily identifiable talents or personality characteristics or whatever it might be. And that's the fact that sometimes spiritual gifts can be much more apparent to an external person viewing than they are to the individual who may have received them. And I'm thinking of the story of Moses at the burning bush where God asks him to go back to Egypt and to lead the Israelites out of slavery. And Moses has considerable concerns about he, he's not the right person. He doesn't have the right abilities. He doesn't have the right talents. Now, I bounce this idea off my wife Clancy, and she it was pretty impatient with Moses, to be honest. She said, Hang on a minute. He grew up in the palace. He would have had the right languages. He would have had the ability to speak. He's obviously the right person for the he job. He would have known the protocol. Exactly. So she was harsh on Moses and said he was probably just trying to make excuses. Now, that may well be true. Uh, but still, the the idea that spiritual gifts might be more apparent to an external observer is one that I think we need to at least consider. Gideon is another good example, because when God comes to him, Gideon doesn't say, why, you're right, God, I do have unbelievably strong faith. I am going to be the right leader. Gideon lays out a fleece and then does it again, because he second guesses the first result. And and I think it's, it's sort of highlighting something that we should at least be a bit attuned to. Um, in our own personal journeys, we need to be aware that we might have spiritual gifts we are not acknowledging to ourselves and that are more apparent to others. And we need to be, I think this is one of the roles of being in Christian community rather than Christian isolation. The community is one of the contexts that tends to bring out an awareness of the gifts. One comment I thought of, Locke, as you said that, was the passages we read in the New Testament where Paul describes everyone's different needs. You know, some are, you know, to him who is... Um, is going to extend mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Well, just hang on. Aren't we all meant to extend mercy? But it seems that Paul is saying, no, actually, there'll be some of you in the church who excel at being merciful. And there'll be some of you who excel at teaching. And there'll be some of you who excel at these different things. And you are all in need of each other. And he, he employs the metaphor of the body, which we've talked about in past episodes. And there's this idea that um, there is in the community... Um, something which isn't in it the individual parts i was going to say cam um, some may excel at it or some may through circumstances require it more you know not everybody in life gets put in a position where they need to for example um really forgive something horrible that somebody else has done to them you know, um, but some people, unfortunately, do have that experience. Um, you know, it. I, I, I would. I wonder how much gifts are given according to talent, innate or 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 
earned and how much they're given according to need. I really think that's another additional layer on the sort of thing that Locke was talking about where it's not necessarily obvious to the person who is exercising the spiritual gift that it's something that they have um, uh, but it is seen externally perhaps by the person who benefits from it from the recipient uh, of the gift um, uh, and, and I think in Moses case uh, uh, I suspect that Moses was making excuses but I don't think he was unjustified in making those excuses yes he'd been uh, in Egypt, yes, he could speak the language. Yes, he would have known the protocol of the court as it existed at the time he was there. Uh, but he'd been a shepherd for forty years. Um, uh, go, go, go back, but go from being a shepherd back into uh, the palace, and he will not have the same connections that he has. Um, uh, the royal um, uh, protocols, uh, the culture of the uh, palace. Uh, will have matured and progressed or perhaps um, deteriorated. Um, uh, and uh, he would know how important it is to get all of those things just right in order to succeed um, uh, in the, uh, the political machinations that might be necessary to achieve what he would do with his own strength. Uh, and he just realised he, he just wasn't up to it. And he was just being frank about that. Uh, with, with regard to Moses, um, I, I think, and this is not a judgment of him because I'm absolutely certain I would have done the same thing. He probably didn't want to go to Egypt. And he was, his brain was making up reasons not to, um, you know, rationalizing his decision. And this is very, I mean, people do this all the time. You think of yourself as rational, but what's actually happening is the emotional decision is being made first, and then your brain is coming up with a list of reasons to justify it. You think it's happening the other way around, but it isn't. I, I recently watched a really interesting um, TED talk about this, a, a lady called Ruth Chang, who's, who's studied the psychology of decision-making, particularly making difficult decisions, um, and she kind of highlights this point that very often it's not when you're weighing up a difficult choice and you're trying to you're weighing the pros and cons of either either choice what you're actually doing is engaging in a sort of mental exercise which is kind of reassuring to you because you're justifying whichever decision you do eventually make but which isn't actually helping you make the decision mm. because difficult decisions are too complex to 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 balance mathematically such that you can confidently say one choice is better than the other because you're you're very often in a difficult decision you're you're comparing two unlike things what what you're saying there is actually super close to a thought that i had back at the start of this episode when we were discussing verse 20 of numbers 22 that night god came to balaam and told him since these men have come for you get up and go with them that comes after God has said, don't go, don't go, don't go. He's made it really clear. I can't help reading it as Balaam persuading himself. In other words, uh, 
I don't know quite what you do with the, you know, it says that God came and told him. But to me, it resonates with that experience you just described, Luke. Balaam has been told really clearly the answer, but he doesn't want to accept the answer. And he keeps going until he has an experience at night that he interprets as God said, I can do it. And then the next morning, Balaam got up and went, but God was angry that Balaam was going. It, It almost does read as if Balaam is justifying something and maybe God wasn't quite as clear in that in that conceding yeah okay go and how many times have I told myself uh, that God has given me a green light for something that I want to do Um, I'm much more happy to accept uh, his green lights for the things I want to do than his um, uh, Mm. red lights uh, for those things and his green lights for the things I don't want to do yeah. Well, but there is something encouraging in us all for that, Ken, which is in this story, which is that um, if if God really wills it to be so, there's not much any of us can do to stop it. And conversely, if he wills it not to be so, you can't make it happen on your own at least, by accident. At least you can't will. make it happen in the way that you'll imagine. <laughs> um, um, and I, I suppose my final thought on this one, and again why I think it was a really clever choice for this topic is the story of the donkey talking uh, because God gave it the gift of speech should leave all of us in no doubt uh, about the power that God has to see us through any situation or challenge that we feel we are not up to because whatever assistance we might need it it can't be more than what's required to allow a donkey to articulate logical reasoning i I like that luke that leads into what i picked as my final thought uh it and even this idea of what we said earlier about um our tendency to rationalize what we want that's another advantage of community um is that in community, when we're forced to rub shoulders against people who are different to us, uh, that that tendencies we have as individuals to to manipulate our perception of God's spirit to fit what we want is much harder to do in, in a group of people. Um, and that we are at all times dependent on God and that he is more than able to give. One of my favourite quotes about God's spirit is... Uh, in an interview, uh, the theologian Dwight Moody, uh, an evangelist, sorry, was once asked whether he was full of God's spirit. And he said, yes, but I leak. <laughs> and I think that that we're, we're all in pretty constant need. And and Balaam doesn't get everything right. And the story doesn't end well. And the, I mean, the fact is that Balak wanted a curse on the Israelites just impede their progress. All, all that was needed was a few Moabite girls to go and seduce them, which is a, itself a sobering thought. Uh, the Israelites are not brought down by some crazy supernatural curse. Oh, there's a whole discussion to have there. We better stop. We're running out of time. Uh, that was my final thought, and I'm opening a whole new can of worms. Do you have any final thoughts, Ken? Yes, look, you did open another one. I think there's a delightful ambiguity in Dwight Moody's leaking of the spirit as well, because... Uh, of when he's leaking, he's constantly needing to be filled up again, but he's constantly sharing um, uh, the spirit as well. Um, 
Uh, Look, my final thoughts uh, were these. Cam, you said earlier, a gift is not generally earned. Um, Well, in fact, it's the central thing about a gift that it's not earned. Um, uh, The other central thing about a gift is that um, it must be received. Um, And uh, I think that is what we need to be looking for, is to receive the spiritual gifts that God is wanting to give us. Uh, And we looked the other week at um, how when we seek, uh, God will be found and that he will give us the gift of the Holy Spirit um, if we ask. Um, And we need to receive that gift. The question that I would like to leave us with is how can we ensure our connection with God is such that we are in a position to receive the gift that he so wants to give. Hmm. Well, let's um, let's close on that question. And anyone wishing to respond can email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and we'd love to hear from you. I think that um, given the discussion we've just had, it would be appropriate to end with a prayer. Uh, Dear Father in heaven, we hardly know ourselves. It's almost certainly the case that in many aspects we're not as good uh, people as we think we are. It must also be the case that we have many strengths and opportunities and potential, much potential that you've given us that we also don't recognize. So please help us to see ourselves more clearly, but most of all, help us to see you more clearly. Um, And more accurately, may our picture of you work, may it function in our lives. And may we accept the gifts that you give us. Amen. 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 Amen.